Live from the Pacific Northwest, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. Real. True. Stories. May the narrative be with you. My dad was a car guy. And when I think of the context of my relationship with my father, it's about the cars he drove, the music that we listened to in those cars, and the conversations that we had. The first car that I remember was my father's 1967 Turquoise Thunderbird. I know, a hot ride, right? I didn't keep it. That's the sad part of the story. Um, so when I was four years old, my parents got divorced, and the Thunderbird is the car my dad used to drive from Edmonton, Alberta, to the beautiful weather of Vancouver, British Columbia. For Canadians, that is beautiful weather people. <laughs> so I started, of course, visiting my dad, and um, every time, because he was a car guy, it was a big car. So in the early years, there was like a series of muscle cars, you know, the big, uh, Two-door, V8 engine, big stereo, you know, the kind that when you're at a stoplight, it goes and, um, and then later on, as he sort of matured a little bit and was kind of taking his businessman more, more seriously, he started driving a really lovely sort of bespoke gray blue Mercedes sedan. But the things that always remained consistent about my father's car were a uh, few things. So first of all, they always smelled like him. My dad was a pipe smoker, and so his cars always smelled like pipe tobacco. He smoked Grahati's pipe tobacco, and it had a very vanilla-y scent to it. He obviously also smelled like damp wool, because it was Vancouver. And he smelled like wood smoke and pine. He lived in the, like, at the base of a mountain in North Vancouver. So the cars always smelled the same. And they always sounded the same because there was the soundtrack of my dad, which was The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, his beloved Joe Parker, and the Canadian, uh, our beloved Canadian, Go to One Foot. So I know it's your report. <laughs> so when I would go back to Alberta and I was missing my dad, I would put on my Gordon Lightfoot album and I'd put it on in my room. I'd lay on the sofa, or I'd lay on the floor, and I'd have a little cry, and just think about my dad, because I missed him so much. So the other thing that always happened in the car was great conversations. From the time I was a very little girl, my dad never talked to me like a kid. You know, we talked about philosophy and religion and history, you know, like you do with your five-year-old. So it just was kind of how it was with him. And uh, we also talked a lot about the future. So we talked about my future, and he would say, you should go to law school. You know, this was the era where every girl was supposed to be a stewardess, you know, for the free travel. And my dad said, go be a lawyer. And uh, the other thing that my dad talked a lot about was me living with him. So uh, he planned to sue my mother for custody, and we used to talk about this. And when I turned 12, he did, and he won. And I went to go live with him. So this time he picks me up in a station wagon with wood paneling. Of course, it's in the late 70s. We expected nothing less, I'm sure, right? And um, he has remarried and has a daughter, a new baby daughter, and so we're kind of an instant family. And for the first few months, it's great. And then my dad, who's Irish, 
and have, you know, the fiery red sideburns. He really had you know, kind of the temperament to match. And he's just getting angrier and angrier. And so he used to have kind of this little swath of anger inside of him. Well, pretty soon the swath of anger was about this big. And we're living our lives on the edges. And really, he's getting uncomfortable to be around. He becomes verbally abusive at times. He is occasionally physically abusive. And really just not a joy to be around at all. So these are my early teen years, and so all I'm doing is bobbing and weaving the best I can. I'm just trying to avoid him at any cost. And I do a pretty darn good job because I'm a teenager. So um, then I turned 15 and a half, and we're back in the car again because I have to learn how to drive, and he has to be the one to teach me. And at first, it's just miserable, you know, fighting, and I'm just like, ugh, trapped in the car with this asshole. I mean, it was just dreadful. And, um, but slowly things kind of soften between us and we kind of, we're in our car bubble again, right? So we're having our conversations, we're listening to music. And so for the first time in a long time, I'm actually kind of looking at my dad because most of the time I'm just running away from him. So I'm looking at him and I notice that he's wearing these really lovely shirts. And my dad was a slob. And I was like, hmm. And so one day as we're driving in the car, I said, Dad, where are your shirts coming from? He's like, what do you mean? They're coming from the store. I'm like, uh-uh, that's not what I mean. Where are your shirts coming from? Who is buying you your shirts? I am buying my shirts. He said, no, you're not. I said, you are having an affair. I said, you really shouldn't be a wonder. <laughs> so, so he pops to the affair. And two months after my 16th birthday, he moves me to Seattle to live with his new girlfriend. I know, awkward. Um, so, but I'm kind of excited because it's a new Nissan life, and my dad's been really miserable. So now the idea of being back with nice dad again is kind of exciting. Only, he ends up in a relationship with someone who's as volatile as he is, and now they're drinking. So, welcome back to the swap of anger, and um, the situation is getting bad. So, it's more volatile. And I start getting scared. So I begin by moving my desk up against my door at night. Because I'm afraid what's going to happen in a drunken rage. So I do that. And then I start thinking it through a little bit more and thinking, well, they could get through that. So I should move my bed underneath the window so that I can get out of the window quickly. And then I was like, I should unlock the window so I have the window unlocked. And then one day, I'm like, you know what? That screen could really get in my way. So I'm, I'm at my window, I've got it open, and I'm carefully trying to pick the screen out of its little track, just an edge of it, so that I can push the window out in case I'm in danger. And then I realize, you are in danger. And in that moment, I realize that I have to get the fuck out. So I do. And I'm about... My dad is not real happy about this. And so he says, I'm going to report you as a runaway. I'm like, I suppose you could. I'm an honorable student. My boyfriend is the class valedictorian, and I was just lethal in the music, in the sound of music. <laughs> that doesn't really scream runaway. So, um, so I don't hear from him for months. And I kind of move through my senior year. 
And the one thing he's let me do is keep my car a Plymouth TC3. <laughs> so I have my car. In the morning of my high school graduation, my dad calls me and he says, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them that you have stolen your car and I'm going to have you arrested at your high school graduation. And at this moment, I realize I don't have a father. I no longer have a father. And for me, a curtain drops. Now, half of my life is basically gone. And I do not speak to my father for 25 years. And it feels clean. I don't feel all boo-hoo-y at Father's Day. I don't, you know, when I see friends with dads or kids with dads, I don't think, oh, it was such a loss for me. I'm like, no, it was no loss. I'm good riddance to bad rubbish. I mean, I really felt fine about it. And then a friend sent me the Brene Brown TED Talks on vulnerability. And I watched it. And I thought, vulnerability is not really my bag. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, how, you know, where did it go? How can I get it back? And it doesn't take, you know, too long to figure out, gosh, maybe that little thing with your dad might have something to do with it. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to think about that a little bit. So a couple months later, I'm walking through the stacks of Powell's, and I'm sure this has all happened to you. A book had leapt into my hands, and this book was called The Lost Art of Compassion. And it really talked about compassion, duh, but um, what I really got out of it was it's so easy to have compassion for someone who you love or care about, and they're hurting, or, you know, and you want to make it better. Of course, our hearts just are like, oh, what can I do? We make you soup, you know. Uh, but when someone is not nice to you, compassion is a lot
And I learned a lot about his midlife crisis that he was having while I was living with him. And no excuses, he didn't try to make excuses, but hearing his side of the story really helped. So then the next step was to spend a holiday together, and he asked me to spend Thanksgiving with him. Again, kind of awkward. It was not a Norman Rockwell sort of scene. It just felt kind of weird. So we have Thanksgiving, and he's trying to have like a you know father-daughter conversation with me, but we're not in the car bubble, so it doesn't really work. So we do go into a study for a little while, and we talk, and he says, well, what's going on with you right now? Like, is there anything, you know, what's big happening for you right now? I said, well, I've got this really amazing job interview that I'm super, super excited about. It's in two weeks. And he said, well, what's the date? And I told him. And two weeks later, on the, on the day of the interview, I looked down at my phone, and there's a voicemail from my dad. And I think, I have a dad. I have a dad who's tracking what's going on in my life. This must feel like what it's like to have a dad. And so I listened to the message, you know. And it's not my dad. It's his wife. And my dad has had a massive stroke. And he's not going to make it. And uh, she says, he's on a ventilator. And we know he's not going to make it. So I'm thinking, great. I can't have a last conversation with you. And we're just getting started, and I'm still figuring this out, and I'm not even really sure exactly how I feel about it. And now you're leaving. And now you're leaving. So then his wife says to me, Michelle, you can still hear. And do you want to say goodbye? Well, you know, there are just times in life where there aren't words. There's just, there's no, there's no words. And I thought, what do I say to connect and say thank you and all the things that I want and need to say? And then Gordon Lightfoot comes to me. <laughs> Thank you, Gordon. And I realize that there's a Gordon Lightfoot song with perfect lyrics that exactly express my heart. And so I sang to him. I sang him. If I could only have you near to breathe a sigh or two. I would be happy just to hold the hands I love and to be once again with you. <laughs> to be once again with you.